following audio is from a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. As I look back on uh, the past 12 weeks of this series, it seems as if it's been a really productive 12 weeks. If you're just jumping in, you missed out, but you can always go back, check out the podcast if you want to. Uh, But it's been a really productive 12 weeks, and I think for three reasons. First of all, I think that this sermon series has made us better worshipers. Uh, the, the more we rightly understand theology, the more we understand who God is and what he has done and how he has acted within time and space and within history for our benefit, it makes us respond to God in a right way. And so I just felt this. I, I, I kind of pointed this out a couple weeks ago. Just I feel like the room has this more dynamic expression of worship and I'm thankful to God for that. I, I love being in a room with people just lifting their voices, hands, the Lord. The, the second thing that I think has been really helpful in this season is, is God has been equipping us as missionaries. Um, I, I've mentioned this before that the Quad Cities is the number 17 most post-Christian city in the United States. That means that there are more people in our city who think that they're Christians that probably aren't Christians based upon the way that they live. There's a disconnect between their profession and the actual living of their life. Um, And so for us to step into our city as missionaries and be people who are working to connect people to the risen and true God of the universe, Jesus, um, that, that it's given us the theology, it's given us the understanding of what we mean when we profess our faith, that we can connect uh, the, the post-Christian city to an orthodox faith. So I think it's been really helpful in that sense. And I, and I hope that the third piece that's helpful Um, and productive for us is is really summed up in this last sermon here. I'm praying that the the Apostles' Creed uh, and our understanding of it helps us to become relentlessly optimistic about the future. And and really that's that's what I said, we're we're focusing in on this as we get to the last line of the Apostles' Creed where we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And and what this is saying is no matter what we face in this life, no matter what joys, no matter what struggles that we're gonna be met with in this life, that we will overcome. That that this is not the end, there is more to be written and it's actually a quite triumphant ending and so in this, in light of the ending that's being written in this story, that, that we have as Christians this buoyancy that, that no matter what pushes us down in life, that no matter what comes at us, we have this ability to pop back up. It's, it's this relentless optimism. And, and, and while we are going through the Apostles' Creed, what's really doing is showing us this big st- story. It's providing this narrative arc of what scripture is telling, um, the story that we find ourselves in. Though in the Apostles' Creed, it's not necessarily linear, but you can see all of the pieces, and this is the story that every good story imitates. Every good story echoes this story. This is a story that shapes us as Christians, and this is the story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, consummation. Let me break that down here and show you where we see this within the Apostles' Creed. When we start, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Now, the way we profess God the Father, this almighty God, he's holy, he's good, right, and perfect. Everything he does is good, right, and perfect, and in his good, right, and perfect nature, he creates creation, and is, it is good. And so we see creation. Things were created for God, by God, for his glory, 
But we saw, as we professed last week when we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins is the reality that there's a fall. In fact, the creed itself points to the reality that we live in a fallen world because if we had been with God and stayed true to him throughout the Garden of Eden, there wouldn't be a need for us to profess our faith because a lot of what our profession of faith is saying is what we don't believe. And so we wouldn't necessarily need the creed. Sin gives us the need for a creed and we see that the fall has broken this beautiful creation that God has made It's left us in a vulnerable, a broken position, and this is where the redemption comes in. That that the middle stanza of the Apostles' Creed where we profess our Christology of who Jesus is and what he has done, where he has come, born of a virgin, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to suffer at the hands of men for the redemption of the world. That he was born, he suffered, he died, he's buried, he rose from the grave and he ascended into heaven. This is the turning point. This is where before that point, everything in creation, everything in the narrative was going downhill real fast, but Jesus turned things around. He stepped into the story and by his redemption, he is bringing about the restoration. He's creating a new humanity. We, we do this, we, we acknowledge this in the profession of our faith that I believe in the holy Catholic church, that Jesus is creating for himself a people a new humanity, people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, people who live in the forgiveness of sins. So we start to see this upward trajectory. Things are being made new, and one day this will all be made new. Everything in its fullness will be completed, that that redemption will be complete in its full entirety, in consummation where glory will abound forever where all creation is renewed, where we find the happy ending to the story that we're living in. And so what we've been saying the last 12 weeks as we we recite the Apostles' Creed together, that last stanza, we're acknowledging, we're professing faith that we will one day experience happily ever after. That's a reality. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And and it's this hope for the future that invigorates us as Christians. It's it's what propels us on mission. It's what propels us to live godly lives and to be about not just what our, our, our present circumstances present to us, but to live for the future. This future hope that we have in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting is so strong that it pulls us forward through life's pains and trials and hardships. It's this resilient hope. Yet this future is so secure that it it keeps us from having to worry and being anxious about losing it. Because that's what happens. When, When life is going well for us in the moment, and I think we all get to experience times of blessing within our lives, there's always this idea, man, that things are good right now How long is it gonna be like this? Will we lose this? How long till the wheels fall off? Well, the future that we're promised is secure. And the key to having this this kind of hope, of having this sort of buoyant optimism is to have our hope set on something that's bigger than the here and now, to see beyond our current circumstances and see into eternity. And so that's what we're doing today when we we profess faith, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. This is the key to this buoyant hope. So I'm gonna unpack this and kind of work through what does it mean when we say resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. I'm gonna gonna break that down, but then I I wanna show you why this really matters here. So first of all, 
Um, what do we mean when we say resurrection of the body and the life everlasting? In the most basic explanation, it means that there will be one day a resurrection. Now, usually when we talk about resurrection, we, we usually pin it to Jesus and his resurrection. He was buried, he was in the grave for three days, and then God made him alive again. He resurrected him from the dead. And, and typically, we think of it as an event that's already happened. Jesus was resurrected, but actually what this line is doing is pointing us forward to the future, that one day there will be a resurrection. In fact, that's what 1 Corinthians 15 is saying. In, in addition to saying, yes, that Jesus was resurrected, that was a historical event. And by the way, that's, that's the foundation, that's the basis of Christianity, that if Jesus wasn't raised, then we're wasting our time here. Right? If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then we're just playing church and none of this really matters. Our faith is futile. I'm wasting my breath. You might as well go home and take a couple extra hours of sleep. But, but because Jesus was raised from the dead, this has eternal significance. This has meaning, but it also tells us not only was Jesus resurrected, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is telling us that we too will be resurrected in bodily form just like Jesus was. You see this in verse uh, 20 of chapter 15. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead that is fact, that is true, that is historical. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now what he's saying here, if you see that word first fruits, what it's saying, first fruits means first of its kind. It means that there is more of this, whatever this is, that's coming. It's like for, for harvest time. We're right in the middle of harvest time for farmers. Um, they go out, they harvest, they do the first pass through the fields, they gather their crop, uh, they put it in, in um, you know, the tractors or the semi, they haul it off to um, market. But after that first load, they don't stop, right? They, there's still more to be done. Um, harvest is a season, not just a moment. That, that it's more than a day's work, it's more than one trip through the field, that there's a lot more coming than just that first trip to the grain elevator. Right, so this is what we're saying with the first fruits. The same is true of resurrection, that though Jesus was the first of its kind, that more is coming behind it and there's a lot more coming. In fact, it's this event that Jesus' resurrection, he, he sets forth a chain of events, this, this big event, event that scripture speaks of as the resurrection of the dead. It's not just, it's an event, the resurrection of the dead. This whole thing is set in motion. Now, you might think that this idea of resurrection is a, is a Christian, like exclusively Christian idea. You know, like Jesus was raised from the dead and it's like, okay, I guess this happens now. Like you die and Jesus raised from the dead and now that, well actually this, this goes way back before the first century as far as the belief of this. Back in the Old Testament and prophets Isaiah, Daniel, um, even all throughout Jewish culture was this idea that there would one day be a resurrection where the dead would be brought back to life. In fact, this was a, a topic of debate, debate between the Pharisees and the Sadducees back in the first century. Um, the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. The Pharisees were certain that there was a resurrection. You even saw it with everyday ordinary Jewish people who, who thought, you see this with um, when Jesus uh, raised Lazarus from the dead, there's this dialogue among common Jewish people that one day there's gonna be this resurrection of the dead. And, and in Acts chapter 25, 
uh, Paul is drawing out the continuity between Jewish belief of the resurrection of the dead and this Christian theology of the resurrection of the dead. He's saying that, that both are saying the same thing, that everyone is raised on the last day. Jesus returns, his judge comes back. Everyone, whether Christian or non-Christian, will be raised. The righteous will be raised to life and the wicked will be raised to judgment. And so there is a resurrection. It's a matter of what experience of the resurrection you have. Will you have an experience of resurrection to life or to judgment? Will your life, will your eternity be filled with fulfillment and deep satisfaction or will it be filled with futility? Now the central message of the Christian faith, this is where it's distinct from Jewish faith. The central message of Christian faith is how one obtains the status of righteousness. Because right, if, if the condition is that the righteous are lived to life, how do you become a righteous person? How do you gain access to the resurrection of life? That's the central message of the Christian faith, that resurrection can be yours because when you believe in Jesus, when you profess your faith in him, you believe that his blood has cleansed us from all iniquity of all of our sins, and he is crediting us with his own righteousness, that he was perfect and it's credited to us that we are both cleansed and now qualified to enter into resurrection of life because we have been made righteous through Christ. And so it shows us here in verse 22, it says, those who are in Christ, those whose faith are in Christ will be made alive. They'll be resurrected with Jesus. And because Jesus was vindicated in his resurrection, it tells us that we too will be resurrected with him, that as he was resurrected, we too will be resurrected. Now, the Apostles' Creed, it's, it's kind of interesting because it doesn't just say, I, I believe in the resurrection. The Apostles' Creed actually specifies, I believe in the resurrection of the body. Um, and it's telling us that this idea of resurrection isn't just some sort of spiritual state that we'll enter into someday where like floating heads, floating around throughout you know, eternity. It actually tells us that we'll be embodied. Um, now, uh, some, some Christian streams of Christian faith and other religions push against us and say, you know, the body is bad. You know, to, to have this new life, if, if this new life is a, a, a a glorious thing, it means we'd have to shed our body and, and be the spiritual state forever. In fact, they would draw from how the Apostle Paul talks about, he, he talks about how the flesh, like to put the flesh to death and to live by the spirit, in this contrast of, of the flesh and the spirit. But, and when we look at this, it kind of makes sense. It's not right to, to make this dichotomy. It's a false dichotomy. But, but it does make a little bit of sense when we see the connection between our physical bodies and, and the role that sin and temptation plays in our life because a lot of temptation, a lot of sin is felt within our body. You think about it. You get angry, you, you rage, you feel that in your body. It has a, a physical presence in you. You think about of, of lust or addiction or, or even worry and anxiety. It has physical effects and you, you might look at it and say, well, obviously, well then the, the the common denominator here is the body. It's the body that's bad. There's this reality that, that, that our, our physical nature can impair our lives. It can hinder us from living to our full potential. And so some of the Gnostics and some of these people that make these false dichotomies say, well, this new life that Jesus brings us into must be spiritual. Not physical, but exclusively spiritual. 
But that's not the case because when we see Jesus in his resurrected state, he was physically resurrected. He was raised to new life in the body that he was buried in. Jesus, after his resurrection, he, he walked and talked, he ate, he did things in his original body that carried some semblance of what he looked like before the whole crucifixion, crucifixion and death and resurrection. Right, so there's some similarities here, but this new body that Jesus has, it, it, it's, it's the same, but it's better. It has new capabilities, it has new features. Jesus walks through the doors, he has some sort of a different appearance. Like th- there's this reality that our, our, our resurrection bodies are our physical bodies in a glorified state. And so that means that when, when we are resurrected, that we'll be resurrected like him, that we'll have our same bodies, but it's a new version. It's a better upgrade. Things are clicking a little bit better than what we experience now. Now, I don't have time to really unpack all this, the, the, the whole concept of uh, the body, uh, of the, actually, in fact, um, if you go further into 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 35, um, the Apostle Paul really unpacks this about the, the resurrection body. Um, and what he tells us, just sort of in a nutshell, is that our, our earthly bodies will give way to our heavenly bodies. He, he uses illustration as like a seed or a kernel, that, that, that our, our physical bodies are like a kernel of corn that you put in the ground. It's a seed that gets buried, and, and then in the new life, it brings forth in a new type. And it's still, it's still, Corn, right? It's a kernel of corn, goes in and it comes up as a new expression of corn, and so is the sort of body that we have. Our natural body becomes a spiritual body. Our earthly body gives way to a a heavenly body. It it has a whole new kind of glory, a new beauty, a new power. In fact, in that passage there, Paul tells us that our, our bodies go from being perishable and corruptible to incorruptible and imperishable. Now what this shows us in in this reality of the bodily resurrection is the redemption that Jesus offers us is comprehensive. It it covers soul and body. He's cleansing our spirit in, in a sense that we are resurrected in spirit right now as we put faith in Christ, but one day the body will catch up. There's this total renewal that happens in the resurrection where limits are removed. The sin that is embedded in our flesh is rooted out. Things are fixed, right? So if if you have a handicap, if you have some sort of uh, impairment, our bodies, even with sickness, our bodies become indestructible. They become heaven-forged bodies that are built for eternity. And that's why we profess I believe in the life everlasting. Because to be alive in Jesus Christ, to to experience his spiritual resurrection that will one day give way to a bodily resurrection means that we will live forever with him. Now if you read through uh, all of the writings that the apostle John lays out, the gospel of John, 1 John, uh, one, two, and three, even in the book of Revelation, John has this um, infatuation with this um, idea of life. 
He talks about Jesus coming to give us life, a full and forever kind of life, the standard of life that is just through the roof. Now you can see this in maybe the most popular Bible verse of all time, I believe, or when we say, um, man, I'm John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, so we would not perish, but what? That we would have everlasting life. In John chapter 10, verse 10, John says, actually Jesus says, I've come to bring you life. And I've come to bring you life to the fullness. Not just like a life that's a little bit better than how things are going right now, but a life that is exponentially better. A type of life that exceeds your expectations, your hopes and dreams, your wildest dreams don't even compare to this type of life that he's bringing us. So Jesus is telling us, what John is telling us, that Jesus is telling us that he's coming to give us life, that our future is incredibly bright. This resurrection life, this eternal life, when it comes, it ushers in, it ushers in a new era where glory intensifies forever. Think of, think of the best moment that you've had so far in your life. How sweet that was. I don't know, what, maybe when your kid was born, you got on your wedding day, or you, know, you, you achieved a goal that you were just really hoping for. You, you experienced that joyful day. Now, eternity is reliving that day even better and intensifying forever. <laughs> This new era where everything is set right, things are perfected in glory, not a single thing is out of place, and everything is as it ought to be. A day where there is no more sickness, a day where there's no more pain or sorrow or death, a day where injustice is snuffed out forever, where only What's good and beautiful and true will last forever. And this is the reality of eternal life. It isn't just life forever, it's the best life lived forever and ever and ever and it gets better and better and better. Because this life means living in God's presence and reveling in his vast blessings for eternity. There's no expiration date on this. There's no chance of losing it. There's no way that someone can come come and and take that away. It is secure forever, and here's why. Because you find this later on down in, um, let's see, where was it at? In verse 24, or even in verse 23, where everything that is threatening to this type of life Every enemy is snuffed out. Jesus defeats everything that threatens this life. Sin, Satan, evil powers and authorities, even destroying death itself. And so all that's left is this true life and what makes this life sweet and great and beautiful. See, this is the ending that we are hoping for 
right? There's something that, that, that just, we're, we're wired to long for happy endings. There's a reason why people like to watch these holiday Hallmark films over and over and over again, because it's the same story over and over. It's a happy ending. There's this desire that we all have is for this happy ending and this, this ending that God is bringing about in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting is this happy ending that God has been working toward since Genesis chapter three when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and how we, pro, 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 how we continue to sin in their ways. See, this ending, this end goal is God's telos. It's the ultimate end, it's the ultimate purpose, it's what everything is moving toward. In fact, this is the ultimate goal of history, that that all of history has happened to make this end come about. And it's this powerful vision of the future that reaches back into our present and pulls us forward. It's this reality that one day things will be made right. One day we'll be resurrected, that the, the, the corruptible will be made incorruptible, that the perishable will become imperishable. It's this reality that, that no matter what comes at us, no matter what enemies, no matter what trials, no matter what hardships we face in our life, we will pop back up because Jesus himself has been resurrected and we will be like him. This is what makes Christians relentlessly optimistic. This is what what makes Christians look at the way things are and and be able to to want to acknowledge, yeah, things aren't great. Things aren't going as they ought to go. But we can look at those things and not despair and be cynical but say, hey, look, look at what Jesus has done. Look at the fact that Jesus is out of the grave and he tells us he's gonna make us like him Now only a strong and certain telos can do that. So only this ultimate end can give you that type of life. That'll give you the fortitude to endure and the hope to keep pressing on. Now if you have a small goal, if your life isn't about that, if it's about anything else, it's a small goal. Your, your end goal in life is just too small, right? We can, we can give our life to, to further educating ourselves or getting the career that we're really pursuing and hoping that we get to a certain financial level or getting our family to a, a comfortable spot or living in a certain neighborhood. We can make this the goal of our life. But if you do that, you will waste your life because none of that lasts forever like the resurrection of the dead. Not only that, but if you're living to that end, to to that lesser goal, whenever you meet circumstantial hardships, it will crush you. Oh, I'm working so hard to this end, and this thing doesn't happen. Oh, dang, what's going on? We, we, We become prone to despair. And so the only way to make it through the difficulty of this life is to have a future hope, a future ending that rewrites, that comes back and and reinterprets our present to move us forward. See, it's that 
That telos, the resurrection of the dead, that all things made new, this new heavens, new earth, it's that vision which allowed Jesus to endure the cross. Jesus faced the worst hardship that anybody in this world could face. But he said it was the joy that was set before him. It was the reality of that telos, that ultimate ending, that God had this happily ever after in plan, not only for himself, but for all creation, that allowed Jesus to go to the cross in our place. It's what allowed the apostles, who wrote most of the New Testament, to face the persecution that they faced in the first century. That it allowed them to keep proclaiming the gospel of life. It's this future hope that allows Christians who who maybe are diagnosed with cancer or who suffer injustice that allows them to suffer with dignity and with hope. It's the people who look at their present circumstances and say, you know, I see it for what it is, but you should see me when I'm resurrected. This is nothing. But listen, Christian, this is the reality, this future hope, this future telos that allows ordinary Christians to live lives in radical devotion to Jesus in community and on mission. I think there might be a a couple of people in this room who are destined to do amazing things, things that catch the world's eye. But I think the great majority of us are, are destined to live ordinary lives in radical obedience to Jesus. And that is hard. That's hard work. It's hard work to devote devote ourselves to living godly lives. It's hard work to live in community and on mission, especially when it seems like it's so hard that I take one step forward and two steps back in my walk with Jesus. That my MC grows a little bit just to see people move on or move away. It's really hard to keep pressing on in this ordinary pattern of life that Jesus has laid out for us to live in community and on mission as we grow into the likeness of Jesus as we grow in our understanding of the gospel. It's this future reality that allows us to day by day press into this and give ourselves to this. And to the degree that your hope is actively set on this future, will it be present and visible in your life now? This isn't a future hope that we say, oh yeah, yeah, I know that's how it's gonna be someday and we just sort of sit around twiddling ourselves. No, no, this, this hope is at work. It's pressing itself into our lives. That means that the more you understand your ultimate reality, the ultimate end, the happy ending, the more you will live to that end here and now. The more you're able to focus on what is of ultimate importance, not to get caught up in the weeds of the circumstances, but with your hope set on the future day. And so it means that we give, this, give ourselves to this work in our family, that we, we don't just work to set our, our families up to live this comfortable life, you know, to, to live the American dream, the, the two and a half kids and a white picket fence in a, in a comfortable suburban environment. No, it means that we're, we're giving ourselves to cultivating a deep joy in Jesus, not in our circumstances, not in, in our paycheck, not in our neighborhood, but a deep joy in Jesus, 
and that future reality that we will be with him forever. It means to cultivate that in your kids. To train them that you're not, your, your purpose is bigger than just a paycheck or a career or some sort of sports achievement. Your purpose is to glorify God forever. It means that we work with it vocationally to glorify God through our gifts and our skills. It's not just about getting a paycheck, like I said. It's a mission field. We do this in church. We, we live in community and mission. We're working to advance the gospel because the reality is that, that if we can get in on this, if we can get in on the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, that anybody else can get in on it too. That's the good news of the gospel. That anybody can get in on this. And there's nothing more worthy than devoting your whole life to this work of proclaiming the reality that Jesus has come to give us life to the fullest. Because the reality is in the end, that's the only thing that will last forever. And check this out, everything that you do in this life to invest in the future reality will get repaid in the new heavens, new earth. Every, every ounce of energy, relationally, emotionally, physically, every minute you spend in prayer and counsel and, and loving your neighbor as yourself, every meal you share, every late night conversation, every missional community you attend and you pour yourself into these fellow believers and not yet believers, God will repay that back and give you a full life. All of that work is validated because it will last forever and it's replenished in the resurrection. Now, while we look forward to the new heavens, new earth, while our eyes are set to the future, it's working itself back in the present. It's unfolding right now before our eyes. We are more and more being opened up to the reality of living this resurrection life, and, and, and resurrection is closer than we think. In fact, in 1 John chapter 5, John says that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. This life begins now. It will, it will be in its fullness down the road, but it begins right now. We can experience it little by little. The Lord's Supper is a means for us to remember this eternal life that one day we will feast with God in eternity forever. We'll be, we'll be on the threshold of eternity. But to also remember what it costs. Not, not what it costs us, but what it costs Jesus to give this to us. That he gave up his own flesh and blood. He poured out his whole life. Every ounce of himself was poured out so you could have it. Jesus, Jesus in a sense, he, you know those stories, this might be a distracting thought, you know those stories where you can like choose your adventure story? You, you, as a kid, did you ever have those? I had those. You know okay, so you know, go through, it's like option A, do this, option B, do that, and you choose and it kind of navigates. It's like Jesus went through this story and he chose what seemed to be the worst option. He, he chose to go to destruction but God used that. He flipped it on his son for our good. 
Jesus took the ultimate bad ending in the cross, which was a false ending because God raised him from the dead so that we wouldn't have to take that ending, that we could have happily ever after. And the reality is that this bread and this wine is just a placeholder that we take in our hands and it's a physical, it's a physical thing that we touch and feel and taste. It's just a placeholder until we get to feast with Jesus in the resurrected state and have eternal life with Christ forever in the new heavens and new earth. This is our future Christian. Listen, if you're not a Christian yet, you have two options. It's, it's this, this beautiful picture of what Jesus is wanting to give you, or you can go, you can choose the path of, of judgment. And instead of Jesus' body, and has broken his bloodshed, it'll end up being yours. Jesus is offering you an out, a happy ending. I pray that you take it. Father, I'm thankful for your gospel this morning. Not only, not only is there the promise of forgiveness of sins, not only is there this a new spiritual life, but one day every piece of creation will be renewed. Every aspect of life will be resurrected and set up in glory. And I pray, God, that in this meal you would make us Christians who look forward to that glorious future and and, in some supernatural way make us even more present in this reality right now. That there's work to be done, that there's a harvest out there. The people are longing to have their happily ever after. God, I pray that you would make us messengers who are quick to share the good news of Jesus, that anybody who wants to can get in on this. I thank you for this, God, because if it weren't for that reality, none of us would get in on this. It's because of your grace that you've offered us Jesus. God, now we offer ourselves to you. Pray this in Jesus' name.